You are listening to The Advocast, presented and produced by the Advocates for Human Rights. I'm your host, Peter Olson. This episode, I sit down and interview Amy Lang, who runs the Immigration Court Observation Project here at The Advocates. The Immigration Court Observation Project draws on the international human rights practice of trial monitoring to identify, bring visibility to, and end systemic human rights violations arising in the context of civil immigration enforcement. The project brings observers from the public into the Fort Snelling Immigration Court in Minnesota to observe and document immigration hearings. The project launched in 2017 to monitor hearings of people facing deportation while held in Immigration and Customs Enforcement detention, otherwise known as ICE. Today, volunteers observe hearings on the detained, non-detained, and dedicated families and children dockets. You could uh, just uh, give a quick introduction of who you are and what you do for the advocates. My name is Amy Lang, and I coordinate the Immigration Court Observation Project on behalf of the Advocates for Human Rights. And the project is um, actually a collaborative project with the advocates, the James H. Binger Center for New Americans at the University of Minnesota Law School and Robbins Kaplan LLP, which is a private law firm. But the I'm the only staff that uh, is dedicated to the project. Uh, how did you come to be doing this? So I actually was recruited by um, somebody who was on staff at the Binger Center at the time. It was a new project, and uh, they were looking for volunteers. And I found out about it through the Sanctuary Network, which was, you know, a network of faith uh, communities that were dedicated to immigrant justice. And so thought they need volunteers. This sounds interesting. I'll go. I knew nothing about it. And it was really profound. And so um, I started being a weekly volunteer. And as it became clear that um, the people who'd been trying to do this alongside their jobs at the Binger or the Advocates um, couldn't really build it out to its fullest, I approached the Advocates and said, I think this should be a job. And it was very fortuitous timing because Another court observation project, Watch Women at the Courthouse, which would, had been an independent organization, was coming under the advocate's wing at the exact same time. So I was brought on as um, the sole staff person dedicated to running this project. So for those who aren't familiar, uh, could you explain um, as best as you can what uh, actually happens in immigration court? Immigration law is very complicated. People say the only thing that's more complicated is tax law. And so immigration court is just one small piece of our immigration system. But basically, um, if the government believes that you are in violation of our immigration law, they can summon you to immigration court. And um, those are called removal proceedings, what we think of um, as using the word deportation proceedings. And people come before a judge and hear the reasons by which the government thinks that they are in violation of our immigration law. And the judge determines whether they have any legal basis to apply to get some kind of relief from deportation, which could be temporary or permanent, you know, legal status in this country. And then those cases get heard. So um, it's sort of a arduous, complicated and confusing process for the people going through it. And can play out over weeks to years. 
depending on whether somebody's being detained by ICE during the process or whether somebody's still living out in the community during the process. And a little bit depends on whether they actually have a grounds to be able to perhaps uh, stay in the country. Could you go in a little bit more about how someone might violate immigration law or what are these people doing that actually ends them up in court? There are a lot of ways um, that somebody might come to the attention of immigration officials. Um, anything from um, being notified by the police that somebody uh, who's known to be an immigrant uh, has been arrested or is being you know, released after an arrest or being released after um, serving a sentence to workplace raids or, you know, being stopped for a traffic violation and, you know, a police officer saying, everybody show me your papers. Um, sometimes it's people who've crossed the border and, you know, are presenting themselves for asylum. Um, sometimes it's people who've lived here for decades uh, who, you know, are green card holders who might have committed a crime that um, violates their immigration status. Um, but contrary to what most people think, um, first of all, a lot of people in immigration proceedings have lived here a very, very long time. Um, and they may have lived here legally or um, without status before they come to the attention of immigration officials. Probably the number one well, or at least a, a large percentage of people are people who came here legally and then, for instance, overstayed a visa or came on a student visa and are no longer students or came on a work visa and that job ended. So the bulk of people in that we're seeing in court didn't violate laws when they came into this country. So, you know, depending on um, really the the presidential administration and what their priorities are can really change who we're seeing in court. Under President Trump, there was such vigorous enforcement. I mean, people who just happened to answer a door when they were looking for somebody else could get swept up. And um, the Biden administration has tried to change those priorities and they're, you know, swing back and forth in litigation. So um, the other thing is that, you know, aside from people who've been here a long time, we see all ages and all nations. It's not really just a border issue. very interesting that, you know, what could determine if someone ends up in court or not is who's currently president at the time. Going in a bit more into that, are there any generalizations you can make about the people appearing in court, in immigration court specifically, um, in Minnesota? Is there general areas uh, these uh, people are coming from? Or is there, you know, a general age you're seeing of people in court? So, uh, certainly the um Majority are from Mexico and Central America. Um, we see people from all over the world. Um, you know, there are regional differences, and we see this some in terms of um, if you look at national statistics. So in some parts of the country, you know, the need for interpreters is largely Creole, and that's not true here. So obviously we're seeing uh, Laotian and Hmong people because this was a place where there was a lot of resettlement. We see a lot of people from Somalia. We see a lot of people from Liberia. We see a fair number of people from Burma. And, and so I think there are some regional differences, but um, we see people from all over. We've seen um, 
recently um, a number of people from Romania. Um, so there, there are regional differences, but we really see people from all over. Um, and some countries that I had never even heard of, like the Federated States of Micronesia. Um, and we see all ages. So um, there is um, a separate, what we call docket. There's a judge who's dedicated to um, seeing all the unaccompanied minors. And unaccompanied minors um, is an interesting designation. They really designated that, if I'm right, I'm not a lawyer, but if I understand correctly, based on whether or not when they first encountered immigration enforcement, they were in um, the custody of a legal guardian or in the presence of a legal guardian or parent. And so if they weren't, they can be des they're designated unaccompanied minors, but it could be that they have a parent living in the country and then they get reunited and then their case moves to be connected to their parents. But yes, we are going to hearings where there is a three-year-old sitting at a table with some foster parent trying to represent themselves in immigration court. The bulk of the unaccompanied minors are teenagers, but but we see infants up to, I think the oldest person was in their mid-70s that we saw in proceedings. And so we'll see people who um, recently came to the United States and we've seen people who've lived here 45 years. So it really does um, on the gamut. But in general, in court, there's um, sort of separate day of hearings for people who are in ICE detention. There's a couple days of hearings every week for people who are um, not detained. And there's a judge who does all the company, unaccompanied minors. The people who are not detained could be individuals, you know, adults, or it could be family groups or some combination. These family groups, do they all have individual cases or are they tried as a family? So um, in general, and, and we've just started watching these, so I don't know if historically it was different, but in general, they try to put them together. Sometimes there's a reason they, they can't, and sometimes there's an issue. We'll see something complicated. For instance, this child came with their father into the United States, so they're still attached to their father's case, but the father has disappeared. Now they're living with their mother you know, can we connect it with the mother? Well, how do we unconnect it with the father? Um, so there can be complicated things or, you know, they're with a theoretical step parent, but the parents were never legally married. And but but in general, they're trying to consolidate those cases. And it's always better for a child if the parent can speak for them. Sometimes if a child is if they can't consolidate that they'll still allow the parent to speak, but the child's case goes on its own. So sort of every permutation we've seen so far. For the court, if they can hear one case instead of four separate cases, and you know, we would hope they would take care to really be thorough on that case if it's four lives hanging in the balance. So we hope they're doing that every time. But um, absolutely, the dockets are the dockets are huge. The backlog is massive. They're under a lot of pressure. So the more efficient they can make the process while being fair, we're in support of that. So now that we you know, or at least have you know a base understanding of what immigration court is and a bit about how it works, how do court observers fit into it? So you know, fundamentally, there can't be justice if court is um, shrouded in secrecy. So most fundamentally, the presence of court observers just upholds the principle that courts um, uphold laws and that they are open to the public. Um, and so our presence underscores the need for transparency and accountability in our system of justice. When we think about failed states and 
sham trials where nobody's there and you, people don't know what the charges are against them. We don't know if there's really evidence. We don't know that there was any due process. So our, our system of government foundationally is that people should get a fair public trial. So we're there to uphold that. Um, so our presence is the most important, but what court observers actually do is for, depending on the type of hearing they're attending, whether it's a you know, unaccompanied minor, whether it's people who are in ICE detention, whether it's people who are living out in the community, um, whether they're hearing kind of um, pre-trial um, procedural issues or hearing the actual merits of the case, we have separate forms. And so people will go and they'll track the cases they're seeing and they'll answer a bunch of questions about it. You know, we're interested in Obviously, some demographic issues. What language do they speak? What country are they from? Do we know their age? Do we know how long they've been here? What's their gender? Um, if I didn't already say, obviously, what country they're from. And then we really are looking at sometimes trends. You know, did you notice anything new? Was there any argument that got made that was really compelling? Um, maybe quotes that will illuminate a person's story without um, disclosing who anybody is. We really um you know, uphold people's privacy and dignity. And then we're looking at who are the different players in court and how are they behaving? And um, are they treating people as individuals? You were very concerned about human dignity and empathy in court. Um, there's a lot of, um, well, or I should say the judges don't have a lot of discretion. I mean, the law is the law and the law is very complicated and grounds for staying in this country are very narrow, but judges have, total attitude in terms of how they treat the person sitting before them and whether they see a whole human being with struggles, maybe even who's made mistakes, sometimes terrible mistakes, but who's a whole person who has people they love and roots somewhere. And so we really care a lot about um, how that person is seen and treated in court. And then obviously we just wanna highlight what barriers people face. Um, they face, a, you know, a lot of barriers just in understanding the process. So how is this process explained? Are they given any tools or resources to really put their best case forward? Um, and looking at, so is, is each player in this system doing the best with the rules as they are? And then for observers to reflect on, what do you think about the rules as they're written? You know, where do you think, um, this system is stacked against people. Where do you think procedures should change? Um, and those are grounds for advocacy. What are the uh, problems in immigration court you've been seeing or what uh, concerns about it have other observers raised? So, um, well, the first is that, you know, we, we started just watching detained hearings. So meaning people held in ICE detention and this is not considered punishment. This is considered um, civil detention to make sure that um, somebody shows up for their hearing. And um, people aren't supposed to be held, though, unless the government deems that they could be a danger. And I won't go down that slippery slope, but really, detention is, is arbitrary. You know, our, our laws might say this class of people must be detained while they're there, but it's a civil proceeding. And so people are deprived of their liberty for a civil proceeding. It's not supposed to be punishment. So that already is a huge problem. Uh, we would advocate an end um, to immigration detention, except in very, very, very rare cases. But being detained sets up a lot of barriers for people, um, financial barriers, emotional barriers, logistical barriers. And so that's huge. But I think the biggest shock um, 
because most of us have grown up um, seeing crime shows on TV and jury shows on TV that um, because these are civil proceedings, there is no public defender type system. So people are not given an attorney. Basically, if you're too poor to afford an attorney on your own, you are on your own. Um, and so people are navigating a very complicated system where for a lot of people, their life is on the line and they don't have anybody helping them who understands the system and who can um, guide, advise, uh, facilitate. Um, so that's huge. And then the language barriers are huge. So um, Spanish is the most predominant language we've seen. And I don't have the numbers on the top of my head, but I would say about 60% of the people we see are Spanish speakers. So at least they might have access to people who are bilingual in jail with them. But we see people with so many who speak so many other languages. We once saw somebody who said, I've been in jail for three months and I've not been able to sh say one word to another person. Nobody wow. speaks my language. Um, so very isolating, but it also means representing yourself is impossible. So people are given an interpreter during their hearing, but there's nobody to translate documents for them. Everything that they get given is in English. Everything that they have to give back to the court is in English. If they have questions when they're not in court, um, there's nobody to help them. And sometimes people go to court, and we're seeing this a lot with people who are not in detention. Now they'll go to court and the court can't find an interpreter in their language. So they may have driven six hours to get to court. They sit there, they don't know why nothing's happening. And then somebody says goodbye and they drive six hours home and they have no idea what happened. So um, language barriers are huge. Um, but the other thing that really strikes me and I really appreciate our observers on this account is their sensitivity to cultural issues. And so language isn't just let's translate the word, but what's the implication of this word in your language? What does court even mean? What is your experience in your home country of what court is? Is this a safe place? Um, how do you communicate with other people? So for some people, you're not supposed, in some cultures, you don't make eye contact. In some cultures, you do. In some cultures, you don't advocate for yourself. You advocate for your community. And sometimes, the way you communicate or answer a judge's questions will be interpreted by the judge in a way that says like you're lying or you're not credible or you're inconsistent and this might be um, really a cultural issue. So uh, it's very interesting also we have some uh, very helpful to have some fluent Spanish speakers like native Spanish speakers as observers and some of them sometimes they'll point something out to me like this got translated this way. They're talking about a gang with this name, but the translation didn't imply it was a gang. So the person would not, the judge wouldn't know what they were talking about. Like we can't intervene, but the fact that observers are noting some things. And so we just wish there was, you know, that kind of training in cultural competency. Um, obviously we see a lot about the criminalization of immigrants and just the language. I mean, our, uh, I, I think, the Biden administration for saying we're not going to use the word alien, we're going to talk about non-citizen. But the so that can be procedural. But our immigration code refers to people as aliens. And when you just think about that language, it's dehumanizing. Um, and just how um, people have to do this process where they kind of agree to the government's contention that they're in violation of status. It's very criminalizing language. And that's sort of written into this is the procedure by how we discuss that. So that's really frustrating. Um, 
I think it's really shocking, and I think most people on the street don't realize, and you can see that the way people talk in general of, you know, get in line, get in line. There are very few avenues for people to come to this country legally. And even if people have been here for decades and own property and have U.S. citizen children, for a lot of them, there is no pathway to legal status. And so we see lives torn apart. And many people will say, I don't understand how somebody who has built a life here and been here so long can have no pathway forward. It's shocking to people. And I think the final point I'd want to say is that um, I don't think it's possible to be an immigrant in this country and not live with trauma, whether that's intergenerational trauma, whether it's the trauma you suffered in your country before you came here, whether it's the entrenched racism of this country. And I don't feel that the court, that the players in the court take that seriously or have adequate training to understand how trauma impacts memory, how trauma impacts personality, how trauma impacts how somebody tells their story, and how trauma should inform how we treat people. So those are, you know, we, we see things on a huge scale, the, the way the system is designed and broken and doesn't allow people pathway, and minute things. Like at the very beginning, one of the first things people would comment about is that people, um, people who were being held in ICE detention pre-COVID were brought to the courtroom and they were brought in shackled. And, and they were not given a pencil to take notes. So they're given all these complicated instructions and they're given nothing to write it down. Um, and so people would say, why aren't they given a pencil? And so we'd meet with the court and go, why aren't they given a pencil? Um, so huge issues down to really small issues. Why are they handcuffed and why aren't they given a pencil? to write these things down. Why don't you give them a memo in the language they speak so they at least know what you told them? Wow. I mean, that's just, yeah, a, you've raised a multitude of issues, but it almost just seems like court is designed for the people showing up in it to fail. Um, yes. They're not giving a chance to accurately advocate for themselves or defend themselves. Right. Um, uh, yes. And it's also set up to deport people as efficiently as possible. So the immigration system right now is not set up for let's see how we can welcome people and let's see how we can give them the tools to succeed. It's let's see how efficiently we can dispatch with these cases and ship them out. Yeah, it's like a, a factory system almost. Yeah. yeah. So you've mentioned it before that there's quite the age range you're seeing, but are there any meaningful differences between how youth and adult immigration court operate? You know, frankly, I'd say not nearly enough. Um, I think that there's some effort to break the ice a little bit with youth, but you can see as the day drags on and they're falling behind that it becomes really just the same. Uh, the, the really, the big difference is not what we see in court so much, but the fact that there are certain pathways forward besides just immigration court. So U.S. Citizen and Immigration Service also grants certain kinds of permissions or what we call relief and status available to youth that aren't available to adults. And so those get, um, those have a pathway forward outside the court system. And so we're seeing the court now being more lenient of, hey, if you have a pathway forward somewhere else, we're going to sort of close your case in court right now. Um, and that's significant because um, it's sort of adversarial. There's really sort of a prosecutor role in immigration court that doesn't exist under USCIS. Um, but we wish 
that there was universal representation for youth, meaning we feel strongly that anybody who's a child going through these proceedings, the court should be paying for them to have an attorney. And so there's advocacy on that behalf. It doesn't happen yet. There's some effort to be a little kinder, but shockingly, we have seen six-year-olds sitting in a chair trying to talk to a judge. The dockets move very fast. Um, lately, we're seeing a, um, a day that might have 100 youth cases on it in a day. That's ridiculous. That if they all show up, that's like, you know, four minutes per person. You cannot make somebody even comfortable in that amount of time. Um, so it's really counting on a lot of people not showing up and then they get ordered deported in their absence. So there's not nearly enough. Let's give these kids second and third chances. They might be housing insecure. If they don't drive, they're not even responsible for getting themselves in the court. You can't blame them for the fault of an adult that's supposed to be taking care of them. It, very stressful. So um, there's some differences, but many of them are negative. Yeah. Wow. That is a yeah. that is a lot. Moving on from, you know, the people in court, um, I'm interested about the observers themselves. Uh, can you say more about the observers? What draws them in? What kind of experience they have? Yeah, so it seems like at the beginning, it really, um, it, a lot of people got recruited from the sanctuary movement because there was a lot of people connected with a sanctuary congregation, a church or a synagogue. And, um but because we are partners with the Binger Center, um, it's sort of filtered through the law schools and through the um, colleges and universities. So it's interesting. I'd say now um, it's probably about 40, 45 percent students, and that could be undergrad or grad students. We see people who are you know, interested in possibly um, the field of human rights or criminal justice or um, law. We see. Um, we have a fair number of first-year law students. I don't know how they juggle that. And then we have about 40, 45% retirees. So post-work professionals looking for something meaningful. And then we have um, a small percentage of still working uh, mid-career professionals. But we get a lot of teachers, psychologists, um, social workers, professors, um, and then people interested in the human rights field. So we have a handful of um, attorneys, either retired attorneys or attorneys that practice in another field. We always try to steer them to actually doing um, case representation. But fundamentally, people come and they say, um, I don't like the demonization of immigrants in this society, and I want to do my part to show welcome, to uphold human dignity, um, to assure due process, um, to educate myself to be a better advocate. Um, and some people do it for a semester and feel like I've learned something and I've got a career path now. Um, some people do it seasonally because we have retirees who are snowbirds or go to the cabin in the summer and are here in the winter. Um, but we have some people who've been with us for the five and a half years this project's been going. So um, many people find it really meaningful. And you know what I say is if people went and they thought, oh, this is interesting and it works great, uh, they wouldn't go back people come back because they're sort of horrified. How do we do this to people? How is this happening in my name with my tax dollars that it's so um, stacked against people who deserve a fair shot? And so people really inspire me. Um, they're very eloquent. They're very moved by what they see. And, you know, it's sort of not in my name and I'm going to come bear witness till we can make it better.
That's a uh, really interesting mix of people. Um, you mentioned, real quick, you mentioned sanctuary churches. Do you mind um, explaining what that is to people who might not know what that means? Yeah, so I, I think the sanctuary movement really started in the 80s when there was um, there were a lot of people um, fleeing repression and sometimes U.S. government funded coups and whatever mm-hmm. and coming to this country. And so churches and synagogues would actually house people to protect them from deportation. And so when Trump came into office, sort of it reawoke and expanded the sanctuary movement in this country. Um, under Obama, he had written a memo sort of um, called a sensitive location memo, really saying I shouldn't do enforcement action in schools, in places of worship, in hospitals, I'm forgetting there was a, a public protest, like don't use these as excuses when people are gathering to or seeking protection to get them. So um, houses of worship were a place for people to go. So there was quite a robust movement um, under the Trump administration, um, really focusing on sanctuary. And so um, one of the staff members at the Binger Center really came to one of those network meetings and said, hey, we're launching this project. Um, And so those were people who were really saying, you know, immigration is my focus right now. How can I get involved? Um, So that's what it was. And many of those congregations still organize within their congregations on all aspects of immigrant justice and um, immigration advocacy. And we still draw a lot of people from those faith organizations. But um, and we don't you know, it's it's like we're posted certain places places and then it's a lot of word of mouth and we've got quite a robust program here so it kind of recruits for itself now. Gotcha. Well thanks for that um, explanation and it's always kind of fascinating to see how like you know one social justice movement kind of moves into the next and blends so thank you for that. Uh, Speaking of if anyone listening to this is, you know, interested in seeing how immigration court works and wants to become a court observer, how would they go about that process? Yeah, the very easiest thing to do is go to the uh, website for the Advocates for Human Rights in Minnesota. Obviously, you have to be in Minnesota to do this because we observe only in person, even if hearings are happening on a video screen, the court wants us to be present. They don't want people, you know. Um, Zoom bombing uh, remotely. So we go in person. Um, But you go to the website of the Advocates for Human Rights, there's a button right on the homepage that says Immigration Court Observation. Um, If people click on that and scroll down, there's a um, registration form. And then um, I get those registration forms and I reach out about um, getting people trained. So everybody participates in a training. We're doing those on Zoom right now. Um, And then they get paired with an experienced observer to go to court their first time. And then it's sort of people just sign up as they're able um, and they download the forms. And but but we have regular gatherings to, you know, answer questions and to keep people feeling like they understand what they're seeing and that they have a way to process sort of the emotional toll. Um, Because it's it's not for the faint of heart, as we say, um, it's it can be really devastating to watch. But we try to have a pretty low bar to entry. We want people to have some training before they go so that they can make sense of what they're saying. It moves mm-hmm. fast. It's complicated. Um, people feel more um, confident and satisfied with their experience if they had some knowledge going in. 
Gotcha. Well, yeah, I will say um, we will be sure to include the link um, to if you are interested in signing up, how you can sign up will be in the uh, description of this episode as well. I'll also just say uh, when I went to court to observe, um, Amy was there as well. And while what I saw in court was very intense, the process of actually like getting there and getting into the courtroom was a relatively easy and simple. So that's not the issue. Um, Thanks for that. Yeah. Um, I guess just finishing up, uh, what is it you hope that the uh, court observation, the project and just, you know, the practice in general, uh, what is it you hope will accomplish in immigration court? That's a great question. You know, I, I think um, in the immediate term, it's that our presence um, improves the behavior of all the people in the court so that people are treated with dignity and respect and um, that people get their fair time in court. But in the long term, it's really we want to transform the immigration system. Um, and it's broken in so many ways and it's harsh in so many ways. And so the more people who see what is and really understand it, not through sound bites in the media and polarized political conversation, but the more people see it and understand it, um, the more they will be powerful advocates. Because if the public demands a different system, there will be a different system. So, um, you know, we hope to see these all over the country. There are um, some, I don't know that any has operated as uninterrupted and robustly for the length of time we have, but there are other projects around the country. And the more people who witness court and see what it is, the more likely we're going to have a groundswell of people who say this is not acceptable. Yeah, I mean, I guess that is one of the biggest parts of advocacy is getting people to know and understand and see and recognize what the issues actually are. And this is a, a great way of doing that. Well, Amy, I want to thank you for uh, coming on and answering our questions. And again, for all the work you do helping run this project, it's extremely important work. And I thank you for taking some time out of your day to explain the work that you do. Thanks. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for listening to The Advocast. For more information on the Court Observation Project, visit our website at www.theadvocatesforhumanrights.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it with a friend. It would really help us out. I've been your host, Peter Olson. See you next time.